Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. Thanks for joining Tyler and I for another episode. This is episode 108, and today we'll be chatting with Michael Katchen, the founder and CEO of Wealthsimple, a platform that makes smart investing simple and affordable. After starting his career off as a business analyst with one of the largest consulting firms in the world, Michael got a call in 2011 from a friend who was building a new YC company called 1000memories.com, where he served as the VP of product and growth. After being acquired by Ancestry.com, some of his close friends approached him about advice on how to invest some of the money they got during the acquisition. Michael then created an Excel sheet to help his friends learn how to invest. This was the MVP of Wealthsimple. Since launching publicly in 2013, Michael and Wealthsimple have since raised over $30 million in VC funding and grown to over 20,000 users, winning numerous awards along the way. Michael joins us to share his story, how he got into tech and startups, how he approaches building products, how they overcame early challenges when launching Wealthsimple, how they've built such a cool brand, what they look for when hiring and building a team, and tons more insights on building startups. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet us at hack to start Drop us an email at heyadhocktostart.com or share your feedback right in iTunes with a review, good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on and, and learn more about you know all the amazing things that uh, that you've been doing with uh, Wealthsimple. So before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, like where you're from and, and what you studied? Uh, sure. I'm from Toronto, grew up here, um, You know, made the big mistake of um, going to business school in undergrad, so studied business, uh, should have gone to computer science, and started my career in consulting. So after school, I went to a firm called McKinsey, did a whole bunch of strategy consulting work for big banks and pension funds, that sort of thing, and then moved to uh, California uh, to help some friends build a Y Combinator business. They got into YC in 2010, called me up one day and said, how'd you like to move out here and, and help build a company? Um, nobody had heard about YC back then. And I decided to kind of take the plunge, move to the Valley, and we built that company together for a few years uh, before selling it just a couple of years ago. And then moved back to Toronto to start Well Simple. So I'm back home now and, and building a, a business I am very passionate about. That's awesome. Yeah, well, we're going to explore both of those, uh, you know, in detail as, as the episode kind of goes on. But I'd like to learn a little bit more, like, where did your passion for tech and entrepreneurship come from? How did you how did you fall into that world, I guess? So entrepreneurship, you know, is an easy one, because I feel like I've always been around it. Um, you know, my grandfathers were both entrepreneurs. My father was an entrepreneur. Um, you know, my sister was an entrepreneur. So I feel like it's always kind of been around. Um, I was always starting little things, you know, growing up, either clubs at school or, you know, small little businesses here and there. And in fact, when I got into business school, I, I actually planned to take the summer uh, in between third and fourth year, start a business, was thinking about dropping out to start it. And then a mentor of mine who remains a close friend to this day talked me out of it, tried to convince me to go get a job first. So the entrepreneurship thing has always been a part of, of kind of what um, I've always been excited about. You know, tech really came from San Francisco for me. Like I said, I didn't really grow up around tech. I wish I'd, I'd been pushed to do computer science. And it wasn't until I actually moved out to San Francisco and got really engrossed in the tech scene out there that I got excited about, you know, the ability to solve problems with tech. Um, you know, you can take any, any problem, so many problems in society, not every problem, you know, throw some tech at it and make it easy, you know, easier for people, more accessible for people. 
make people's lives better. And, and that, you know, ability to truly influence people's lives, change industries got me really excited and bringing those two things together in, in our last business and here at Well Simple too, that uh, I get excited about. So after starting your career as a business analyst and consultant, as you mentioned, you joined 1000memories.com in San Francisco as a VP. What was this company and how did you create the opportunity to join their team? Yeah, so the company did a whole bunch of different things. You know, we started out with a pretty grandiose mission that sounds a little weird to explain, but we were trying to solve the death problem of the internet. So I, I hope you haven't had this experience, but I'm sure many people listening will have where you've lost someone close to you, um, a friend, a family member. And in today's world where so much of our lives are online, it's a very awkward experience to lose someone online. You know, you go to their Facebook page, you like a post. It's a very awkward. There is no dedicated, beautiful space for memorializing someone, bringing a community together to celebrate someone's life. And obituaries are, are terrible. You know, you pay $1,500 to run an ad in the newspaper. Nobody reads the newspaper anymore. You know, the ad doesn't tell any of the story and beautiful kind of complexity of someone's life. And so we set out to solve that problem in response to having lost, you know, um, someone that um, and ha having that terrible experience. So beautiful mission, really awesome product that we built that actually helped people get through some of the toughest times in their lives. Uh, unfortunately, found it very difficult to scale a death business. Yeah. You know, it was, um, I was responsible for, for leading growth. And you could imagine I'd go out to these great conferences and, and, you know, speak to business development partners. And I'd tell them this beautiful story. And they'd say, that's so amazing. Love the sound of what you're working on. I hope I never see you again. <laughs> right. It's the problem nobody wants to have. And so we pivoted that business based on some of the things we saw people doing with, with, um, with the platform and created an app called Shoebox, which turned your phone into a photo scanner. And the idea was everybody has a box of old photos in their closet. That's on the one hand, your most precious possession. God forbid the house is on fire. You know, you ask your parents, what's the one thing you're going to take with you? My box of old photos, right? Um, but they sit there. And we're literally, you know, we are forgetting all of the stories that make them beautiful and relevant and important and meaningful in our lives. And they're little, literally disintegrating. You know, the lifespan of a photo isn't actually that long. And so we wanted to help people, you know, preserve and share these really treasured memories, create an app that made it really easy to do that and had a lot of success in the genealogy community. So these family historians, everybody has that aunt or uncle who's super into the family tree that group of people, mm -hmm. and uh, ultimately sold the business to Ancestry.com, which was a you know, really natural partner for us. They're the largest family history company in the world. That's, uh, that was kind of that, the story of that business. How, how it became possible, I don't know if you want me to talk about that at all. That would be amazing. Like, how did you uh, get the opportunity to join their team? Yeah, you know, it was um, a little bit of luck is the answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> so my, my very first project manager when I got into consulting was a founder of that business. And, you know, we remained good friends. We had a great time working together. And so, you know, when, uh, when they got into YC and were looking to build out the team, he thought of me, called me one day and said, Mike, you know, you really got to be a part of this. So I think, the, you know, the lesson from that for me was it's awesome to collect great colleagues and um, make sure you have really awesome relationships with people you work with. You never know how those opportunities could, could pop up and, and change your life in, in, you know, in real ways. It's so true. Like um, I just recently came to to Toronto as well. It's just through my network that I was I've been able to you know get my jobs or meet new people. And it's it's so true how far relationships can go. It's so true. And I think you know I hate the term networking and the idea that you know it's a a thing you do or you go out of your way to go do. But the idea of building authentic relationships with people and you know maintaining those relationships, um, it's really powerful. 
you know, Reed Hoffman talks about it in the book he wrote, The Startup of You, and I, I think it's, uh, it's a really meaningful and important lesson for people. Yeah, of course. So during your time building 1000 Memories and, and the pivot, what were some of the biggest lessons you learned through this experience? Oh my gosh. I mean, lots. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I learned a couple things. I think the, the most important lesson I learned is that working with people that you love to work with, you can be happy do, doing just about anything. Um, we were working on this family, you know, this photos app. I was spending all of my time at conferences and events for, for, or for this group of family historians. And so these genealogy conferences all over the country, you know, I don't think you guys will have ever been to one. But if you can imagine, you know, the demographic is usually 60 plus. You know, the topics are, are really in-depth research topics on how to explore your family history and death records in, you know, the Mormon church archives. Like, not exactly my area of passion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that working with the people that I was working with and the team that we built made it all like the most fun I'd ever had in my life. And I think, you know, one lesson that's carried over from that for me to all simple is, you know, if, if you believe that working with people you love to work with, you can be happy doing anything. If you get to marry that working with an awesome team with working on a problem you're passionate about, and that's magic. And I think that's the beauty of startups. Um, you know, forget the, uh, Forget the, kind of all the sexiness and stuff you kind of hear, and there's so much buzz around it. But but really, if if you boil it down to to just two things in my mind, it's you get to pick an awesome team of people to work with, and if you get to do that and work on a problem you care about, it's amazing to get into the office every day. Mm-hmm, for sure. So, 1000 Memories, as you mentioned, was acquired by Ancestry.com, where you were then the product manager responsible for launching a bunch of different really interesting projects within the company. What advice do you have for product managers on launching products that gain adoption both inside and outside of large companies? Well, I'm sure there are people that can answer that a lot better than I can. You know, I'd say um, a few things that I've learned in product management. So, one is solve problems, solve real problems. You know, the best products solve real problems for clients and, and members and users and whoever your you know your 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 audience is. And um, you know, really understand the problem that you're solving first. Forget the visual design, forget everything. Really take that kind of user focused problem solving approach. Try and solve it in ten different ways before you figure out what the answer is. Um, and I think that's that's a really the key to to really awesome product development and product management. Um, the second is and this is particularly important as, um, as you grow and start getting lots of data is, is use the data. You know, I don't think we really learned that lesson early enough at the thousand memories, just how much you learn and by looking at the right data and asking the right questions, you know, what features are people using? How are they using it? You know, why are they using it? Where, what features are the fastest growing? You know, um, how are your cohorts different over time? Your clients just understanding the data that drives your business is a really powerful tool in a product manager's toolkit. And then using the data to iterate very quickly. So, you know, if you, if you now kind of line those up to tell a story, it's understand the problem that you're trying to solve, you know, and then I would say try and launch a very simple MVP to test that problem, to do all test the solution that you've developed for that problem, and then look at the data to validate whether or not you solved it um, and iterate quickly, you know, launch the second version of it. And then once, you know, use the, look at the data again and launch the third version of it. And I think we've taken that approach to heart really at Wealthsimple, that if you look at the very first version of, of Wealthsimple's um, product, it was a simple Excel spreadsheet. It was a model that I built that showed my friends how to build their own portfolio of ETFs, how to manage their money on their own. And it was from feedback from that, that very simple spreadsheet that you know, I, I built in just a few hours that informed the first version of the website and the web app that we built. 
And so one of the things I always encourage people that are getting into building products and product businesses is figure out what your very simplest uh, MVP is before spending all too much time on, on a long development roadmap. You know, if you can launch something that's a spreadsheet um, before you have to spend six months coding something, launch your spreadsheet. It's so important to get something out there early in the hands of clients or, or users to start learning, you know, start looking at the data um, and iterating right. from there that it, you know, always bias and always ask you to, to the early, early version and, and ask yourself, you know, what, what's my spreadsheet? What's my earliest MVP that I could put out there? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's some great insight and, and definitely something I think people should do. So given your, your background as a, like a financial consultant and talking about mirroring, I guess, your passion with a great team, what really motivated you to launch that spreadsheet to tackle, I guess, the financial industry and, and to kind of create the product that would become Wealth Simple? Where did that motivation come from? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing, one of the things I love about it is, you know, it, it had nothing to do with the motivation to tackle the financial industry. I built the spreadsheet after we sold the business because the team, you know, made a little bit of money on the acquisition and they needed to figure out what to do with it. And, you know, I myself have always been interested in investing. I've been doing it myself since I was 12. So it's always been just, you know, an interest of mine, never something I did professionally. And um, they all asked me for help. You know, we got a little bit of money. What should we do with it, Mike? So that was my problem is I have a few friends that want to invest. They don't want to hire an advisor to do it for them or they can't afford an advisor to do it for them. And they don't want to do it themselves. So I tried to solve that problem with a spreadsheet. Um, you know, here's how to make it really easy for a group of people I care about to, to actually start investing. And what I learned was the spreadsheet, you know, didn't go far enough because their feedback was, Mike, the system's great, but you know, we're lazy. If you just do it for us, then we'd be happy to pay you for that. And you know, that that's actually where the solution um, was born. Was oh, okay, you know, I've got ten clients that are willing to pay me for this. Maybe, maybe there's a business here. Yeah, that's really cool. I love how it started off as, as a simple solution for friends. <laughs> yeah. So now Wealth Simple seems to be pretty much everywhere. I, you know, I turn, there's billboards, there's signs. Uh, it's, it's like it, it sprung up overnight. So, you know, can, can you tell us, like, how did you guys get to the point where you are today uh, in a nutshell? And, and really, how did you go about acquiring the first users beyond your group of friends in the first days? Great question. Um, I, I'll divide this that into two, two parts, okay? How, like getting our first thousand clients. And we have about 20,000 clients today. And, you know, kind of the tactics between those two have been very different. The first 1,000 clients were all about hustle. They were all about doing things that don't scale. And, you know, if you, if you read any Paul Graham, which you should if you don't, always talks about in the early days doing things that don't scale. And I'm a huge believer in that. Um, so, you know, our three primary growth channels were um, events. So I would do these uh, lunch and learns at companies talking about, you know, just the basics of smart investing, hoping that people would be interested in learning more about Wealthsimple, you know, conferences, speaking events, any chance to get in front of people um, where we could show them the product, get their feedback on the product, hopefully get them to sign up for the product. And I used to do, you know, three to five events a day. So that was kind of one. Two was press. We, you know, learned how to how to build a really great press game early where the press would want to talk to us, would want to consider us thought leaders in the space and more broadly on topics that were relevant for you know whatever journalists we were trying to get coverage from, uh, coming up with interesting stories they would want to write about. So press being a hugely important you know, and free channel of distribution, by the way. And third is, uh, is referrals. So, you know, focusing on awesome, creating an awesome product that people would want to refer to their friends and family. So that, that's kind of really the first three channels that, um, that helped us grow. I think more than that, though, around doing things that don't scale, we just hustled our way to everything. So an example is, you know, when we launched the business, I knew that it was going to be really important for us to have a totally digital product. 
right? If you're creating a tech company, so so the background is 99% of investment application investment accounts in this country are still open with pen and paper. Okay, you want to get started with investing, you got to print off 40 pages of paperwork, fill it out, either fax it, mail it, or walk it into a bank branch. That's how it happens. Wow. Pretty ridiculous, right? And I knew that if we were going to be a tech company in this space, like we could not have a paper application open an investment account, right? That had to be paperless. Challenges when we launched, we were dependent on these third-party partners, you know, the, the brokerage at the back of the, the kind of the back office of the company um, to deliver that, and they still required paper. And so we were unable to offer a paperless experience to our clients. And we kind of said, screw that, and we launched with a paperless experience. Um, and to the client, it looked, you know, super sleek. It was digital. It was great. It was, you know, this paperless onboarding. It was the, one of the first in the country. It was pretty great. The reality of what happened was. Every day, our clients would fill out these applications, and every night, my co-founder and I would sit by the printer, and we would print all of the applications from that day, fill them out by, by, you know, by pen and paper, and then drive them up to our brokerage partner and hand-deliver them so that they would process those applications for the next day. And that persisted for like the first two months until we you know, got enough volume that we convinced them to work with us on a paperless solution. So like, you know, just hacked our way to that kind of product experience we thought we needed to deliver for our clients. And you know, to your point about product management, I think is an important one here because you might have, you know, our, our reaction was we need to deliver a paperless experience to our clients. Some people might say, well, then we would have had to wait six months to try to convince a partner to work with us on an API that you know, could deliver that. Um, and then we would have been waiting six months to launch a product. Uh, instead, we launched a product day one, hacked it, and had to do this manual workaround in the early days. But as a result, we're able to launch a lot sooner start growing sooner, you know, start learning sooner. And, and that was a huge, huge, you know, game changer for us. Yeah, absolutely. And so how do you build a team that kind of continues to embody that same hustle culture? As, you know, I mean, it's fine when it's just two or three and you guys are building it because it's your company and stuff like that. But how do you, how have you guys managed to kind of maintain that sense of urgency as the company's grown, I guess? Yeah, we, we just try and hire really well. I mean, it's hard. I spend I spend probably fifty or sixty percent of my time still on on kind of recruiting and the team and it's one of the hardest things about building a business. I think you know if anything we have a bias for um, we we have this concept at Wellsonville. It, it's a it's a kind of a value of ours, um, which is uh, the maker owner mindset. It's a term we coined. Never thought we'd coin a term, but this one has kind of stuck at the company. And the maker owner mindset is we love to work with makers. So these are makers, not managers, pe- builders, you know, engineers, people that love to build things, not just manage them, right? And owners, people that have that entrepreneurial spirit. They are owners. They don't walk past problems. They take a broad perspective about a company and try and figure out where to add the most value. They don't wait to be told what to do. And so that's kind of this thing that we look for when we, when we hire people. Um, and if you look, you know, our team's now about 50 people. And I'd say about 40 to 50% of the company are folks that have started their own businesses in the past. And I think, you know, mostly because we look for that trait, you know, this, this trait of these entrepreneurs, these builders, the maker owner, and we found that to be really successful for us. Yeah, absolutely. Clearly it's, it's working. So you guys have raised, you know, 1.9 as a seed um, and 30 million as a series A kind of earlier in 2015. So what was this process like for you, both the seed and the series A? And do you have any insights to share with other entrepreneurs, maybe people who are even outside the fintech industry? Yeah. I mean, why don't we tackle each of those in turn if you want? And just, I think the, the two rounds are very different. Yeah. So um, you know, if you're someone that's just, just getting started, looking to put together a small round to kind of get things going, I think um, there are some 
things that you should be thinking about and mistakes that entrepreneurs make. One is a really early stage round. You're not really selling traction or your business. Uh, you're selling a dream, a team. And the third, which is the piece a lot often people forget about, is FOMO. You know, fear of missing out. You're, you are selling this fact or this idea, a perception that you want to create at the very least that all of these great people are investing in this round. You really don't want to miss out. And so, you know, my advice to people that are putting together an angel round is one of the most important things you can do is you want to find your lead investor early and you want that person to be, you know, relevant. They don't have to put in a lot of money, but you want first money and you want it to, you know, to be committed and you want them to be, him or her to be relevant. If you can do that, you're often able to trade on their name or their connections to help you fill out a round. And, you know, it's, um, it's so important to kind of understand that dynamic in putting together an angel round. So many people go out there and they just think, I've got a great idea or a great product. You know, we're just starting to see traction. We've got 20 users. We're growing at 50% a week. That doesn't really mean anything when the numbers are so small. And um, what people really want to see is validation for your product. And so one of the easiest forms of validation to find is who else is investing. Because if someone I know and respect is investing, then I can get a lot more comfortable doing it myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I think you know about angel rounds. I, I actually wrote a blog post about how we put ours together. I think it's on Startup North called like how we raised two million in two weeks or something like that. People want to check it out. The the thirty million dollar round was quite different. You know, it took longer, and you know, in in that case, we had to sell um, traction. We had to um, you know have a much more clearly defined vision about how big this business could be and a, a more well thought out plan about how to get there. And we also needed to build a relationship with these folks. So, you know, Power Financial, who invested in us, has a lead there on their side at the venture arm, who um, I spent, you know, the better part of six months getting to know. And, and when we first met, it wasn't with the intention of, of investing. It was just a, you guys are two young folks with a big vision for finance and technology. Um, you guys should get together and meet, and I think you'll hit it off. It was a connection through one of our angel investors. And we did hit it off. And, you know, every month we'd get together for breakfast or coffee and chat about how we saw the industry shaping up. And eventually the conversation turned to, you know, we're pretty aligned about where we see things moving. I've got the capital. You know, you've got the team. Why don't we figure out how to do something together? And that's really how that process happened for us. So it was a pretty organic one. So I think, you know, you, people say this often, but it's an important one, which is, you know, it's, it's hard to put a brown together quickly and right when you need it. You know, you don't want you don't want your first conversation with an investor if you're trying to raise a thirty million dollar round or a big any round of real substance, right? To be asking for a check, um, you want to get to know them. It's it's more than just about getting a check. The relationship you enter with an investor is a really important one, especially if they're going to be on the board and have meaningful kind of rights and roles in your business going forward. So you want to make sure that you get comfortable with them, and and the way to do that is to build a, a relationship with them over time. Those are some great insights. I absolutely love the, you know, the story behind Wealthsimple and the growth over the, the last uh, year or two. And I think one of the amazing things that you guys are doing right now is just marketing. You guys are pulling off some amazing stunts and attract some really good, or really good talent, but also uh, customers. So how do you approach building that type of brand and that scrappy approach within the company? Yeah, well, you know, for, for us, brand is really important, right? If you think about what we do, um, our business is about asking people to trust us with their life savings. That's a huge ask. You know, most people don't trust a startup with their life savings. So 
you know, we're, we're trying to build a brand and invest in that because we think we need to build trust. And, you know, building a great brand that speaks to people is one way to do that. So A is, you know, we made a really deliberate decision to invest in brand. B is, um, you know, we are trying to work with really talented people who get branding. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've been lucky that we've pulled together a pretty amazing group. Um, and their approach is very much, you know, a brand, you know, when they, if they were to describe brand, it's like brand is the promise that you make to your clients. And then product is like the way you deliver on that promise. You want those things to be aligned. You want them to be simple. You want them to be transparent and consistent. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, other stuff too, like colors and fonts and making it all fun and beautiful. But, um, you know, it's, it's really about that authenticity of the brand, you know, knowing what it stands for and, um, and delivering that both in kind of your marketing and your product is what makes a brand come to life. So that's the branding stuff, you know, on the scrappiness and marketing, we just try and be a very scrappy team. I mean, you know, I, you might, you might, you're probably referring to him may have seen the Shopify campaign. Um, we did when Shopify went public, there was a lockup where employees couldn't sell any options. And then the day of the lockup, we took a, a billboard, you know, just across the street from the Shopify office saying, you know, dear Shopify employees, here's what to do with your options with a link to a blog post, which people loved. Yeah, I remember um, seeing that. It was awesome. Yeah, I think, you know, we're just uh, willing to be scrappy. So two days before that happened, I was taking off on a flight with a colleague of mine who turned to me and said, you know, the Shopify lockup is up in two days. And I turned back to him and I said, oh, we really have to do something about that. Um, And I emailed, uh, you know, our head of marketing and I said, Shopify lockup's up in two days. We should really do a stunt around it or something. And by the time we landed, um, we'd already taken out the billboard. The blog post had been drafted and we were off to the races. So it's just also like a willingness to move really fast. We don't have committees. People get to make decisions, and um, it was a risk. You know, there's a chance that people at Shopify would have hated that. It's a little bit of a sensitive, touchy subject. Mm-hmm. But uh, thankfully, they you know they loved it. That's amazing. How'd you get uh, someone to print a billboard in two days? That's that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think you know our marketing <laughs> guys were up just calling every possible vendor in the city, trying to make it happen. And you know, it's crazy that it was even available, but it was. So we just made it. <laughs> I've done a lot of printing in the past and it's, it's not easy. So that's amazing that you guys were able to do it in two days. <laughs> so that's awesome. I, I can, like I said, I continue to support Well Simple. I love the brand and just what you guys are doing and especially just seeing it all across Toronto. It's, a, it's really cool to see. Thank you so much. So what were some of the most recent apps that you've downloaded or used lately? You mean aside from Pokemon Go? Yeah, besides. Which used to be everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could talk about Pokemon Go, but uh, if there's something else besides that, uh, feel free to mention it. Yeah, so I just downloaded an app that is run by a friend of mine, and I finally got the chance to use it a couple days ago, and I love it. It's called Akira, and it's a doctor in your pocket. And Dustin's going to love me for giving the shout out here. But another um, Toronto startup too. It's another Toronto startup. I used it for the first time, and it was magic. I um, I needed a prescription. I had an appointment. It took five minutes. I did it from my office by text message with a doctor. I got a prescription called in. I didn't have to go make an appointment. I didn't have to go to a walk-in clinic. I didn't have to go leave my office. It took five minutes. It was so simple. It was mm. great. So that's one that I, I love and is now part of my staples. I'm, I'm you know, now paying subscriber over there. And this is an old one, but one of my favorites is Pocket. I love Pocket. If you guys don't use it, you should check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely love Pocket. It's a great app. So do you have any recommendations on some great content that you've come across lately? I just picked up a great new book that I'm excited to open up if that's uh, if that's of interest. That yeah, is by go for Ka- it. Chaos Monkeys. It's written by a YC founder who sold his business to Twitter and then um, 
it's kind of it's its sub tagline is obscene fortune and random failure in Silicon Valley. I think it was a New York Times bestseller this last uh, month, and um, I just picked up a copy. I'm excited to read it. Awesome, yeah, I saw that one get uh, recommended on uh, on Amazon, so you'll have to let me know how it is. Yeah, we'll do. I know the uh, I know the author. So I'm excited to read this one. Okay, well then I'll definitely have to make sure I pick up a copy and give it a read, yeah. and, and we'll see if it uh, if it lead, li- lives up to that subtitle. Yeah, for sure. So, do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by, and you think others should know about? I think um, you know I gave you one that um, I think is is really one of the most powerful for me in terms of you know both career happiness, fulfillment, all those sorts of things, which um, is work with people you admire and, and love to work with. Um, and work on a problem you're passionate about. And I think if you can do th- those two things, I think you're going to be really happy doing whatever it is you're doing. You know, and in fact, I w- if I was to bias between the two, um, I would argue that so few people have a p- problem they're truly, truly passionate about. You know, there's, there's few uh, evangelists and people that truly have that passion and mission and are mission-driven people. For the, r- the rest of us, um, I think it's much better to work with people we love to work with. I think you can be happy working on a whole set of things if, if your colleagues are, are amazing people um, that you admire and learn from and, and want to get into work with every day. Uh, it might sound simple, but I think it's a really powerful mantra. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like something that, that would be uh, harder to, to, to put into practice than, than it does sound. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. We really appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope it was an interesting conversation. I, I enjoyed it. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and on the web at hacktostart.com. We couldn't do the show without your awesome support, so please leave us a review. Until next week.